Today's scripture reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 96. Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Each day proclaim the good news that he saves. Publish his glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things he does. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. The gods of other nations are mere idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty surround him. Strength and beauty fill his sanctuary. O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize that the Lord is glorious and strong. Give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Bring your offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in all his holy splendor. Let all the earth tremble before him. Tell all the nations the Lord reigns. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. He will judge all peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and everything in it shout his praise. Let the fields and their crops burst out with joy. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with justice and the nations with his truth. We're in week three now of this summer series through the book of Psalms. And this Sunday sermon is going to be a somewhat abrupt departure from the last two weeks. The last two weeks we've had parts one and two of a two-part sermon on the subject of anger with God. And we're talking about something totally different this morning. And what you'll see as we go through this Psalms series is it's going to be a little bit all over the map because the book of Psalms itself is a little bit all over the map. And so the, the you know normally our series are thematically linked and during the summer it's just kind of here and there according to the whim of the preacher. Um, so this, this morning I've selected a psalm, Psalm 96, and a topic that uh, we, we haven't talked about much before on Sundays. And I'm not sure when we'd have an opportunity to, to talk about it again, except for in a hodgepodge series such as this one. So I want to take that, that opportunity. And as I said, the psalm is Psalm 96, and the topic is God's passion for being known in every nation, in every language, in every culture, and his expectation that those who follow him will share that passion and will work toward that goal. That's what we're talking about this morning. And, you know, it's tricky today because what the psalmist says is this God wants to be supreme over all other gods. This God wants to be worshipped over all other gods. And when I say that, and when I say that's what we're talking about this morning, the supremacy of one God over all others, uh, that either makes you feel one of two ways. You know, there's two groups of people here. Either, you know, you're what I would call a, a good old Christian, for lack of a better label, and I say one God over all the other gods, and you're like, amen, you know, about time somebody said it. Um, That obviously is the extreme minority of you here this morning, because if you're at all like the average New Yorker, when I say one God over all other gods, it makes you feel extremely, extremely nervous, because any time you've ever heard that mentality, it's been very bad and very ugly. 
And we can kind of talk about a, a spectrum of, of ugliness. So starting on the, what we're talking about basically is, is being a missionary in the, in the traditional stereotypical sense of the word. You know, going and taking your God to another people that doesn't know about him. And, you know, that brings up all these really negative connotations. So spectrum of ugliness. On, on one end, kind of the least ugly but still ugly is missionary um, cultural insensitivity. So a missionary comes and says, our God is the best, and you should worship him. But also says at the same time, and our culture is the best, and our clothes are the best, and our food is the best, and our music is the best, and thereby destroying the original culture. That's one type of ugly. But you can move on down from there, and kind of further down the spectrum, uglier than that, is missionary um, oppression, missionary colonialism, missionary imperialism. And here it's, well we are taking our God to this other people, and so therefore that justifies whatever else we're doing. So you can think about the British Empire, for example. Uh, you know, One of the justifications for British imperialism is, well, we're sharing our God with them. So yes, we've, we take India as our possession, but that's okay because we're giving them a better God. And you see the same thing with Native Americans in this country. You obviously see the same thing with American slavery. That was one of the the best things about the movie 12 Years a Slave from this last year is the way that it emphasized that slave masters taught the Bible to their slaves, preached to their slaves, and thought that in so doing, their slaves were better off than they had been because we're giving them a better God than they had in Africa. So that's a new kind of ugliness. And it even gets worse from there. You see, how does it get worse than that? Well, arguably worse. I don't actually know which of these two is worse, but arguably even worse than missionary imperialism and oppression is missionary warfare, where because your God is better, you're actually going to do violence to another group of people to coerce them, to, to impress your God upon them. And the first thing people think of here is, is of course, the Crusades. You know, Islam was itself first spread at the point of a sword, was spread militaristically. And the Catholic Church decides they're going to respond and they're going to be violent as well. And so you have these attacks and counterattacks for centuries, all in the name of what? Our God is better than your God. You have Christians fighting in the name of Jesus, killing in the name of Jesus, fighting under the flag of a cross because we're taking our God. We're going to take more territory for our God. So I can understand why you feel nervous if I start talking about one God over all the others. One God wants to be supreme in all cultures among all peoples. And yet here it is. That's what the psalm is talking about. So what are we going to do with it? Say, maybe we should just ignore it, you know? Maybe we should leave it alone and talk about something else. But I don't want to do that. I want to address it. I want to grapple with it and see if we can't make some sense of it, at least. And I want to do that by asking three questions. First, what is the psalmist's perspective? Where is he coming from? Second, has anything changed since this was written? And then lastly, how does this involve us? So those will be the three sections of this morning's sermon. Where's the psalmist coming from? What's his perspective? First, second, has anything changed since then? And then lastly, how does this involve us? So first, what's the psalmist's perspective? Where's he coming from? In this first section, this is very straightforward. We're doing nothing but just going to look at the psalm, at the text, and try to understand 
his argument, try to get in his frame of mind without passing judgment. So it's, it's very simple and straightforward. We, we just want to know what he's trying to say. And I want to do that, try to understand him by breaking it down into, into four parts. These will each go pretty quickly. He has two imperatives, two commands, things he's asking us to do. And then along with those two imperatives, he has two rationales that support those two imperatives. So with respect to the, the two imperatives, the first is to just declare God's glory and greatness and goodness among all these other nations that don't know about him or haven't heard about him. Just talk about it. So if you look up on the screen, you can follow around along with me. He says, sing to the Lord, praise his name. Each day proclaim the good news that he saves. Publish his glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things he does. If you just look at the verbs there, publish, tell, proclaim, this is just getting the word out. He's talking about go out there and tell everybody how great our God, this God, is. That's the first imperative. The second imperative is, is slightly different, and it's to summon others. You're, you know, the first one is you go out and praise God in front of all these people. The second one is to summon others who aren't praising him yet to join in the song of praise as well. So it's one thing to go and say, our God's the best, and you know people can just smile and nod and say, thank you for coming. It's another thing to go and say, our God is the best, and, and you should say that too. You should say our God is the best too. He wants you to say he's the best too, to recruit new members for the choir. But this is definitely what the psalmist is talking about. So again, up on the screen, let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize that the Lord is glorious and strong. Give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Bring your offering and come to worship him. Worship the Lord in all his holy splendor. Let all the earth tremble before him. O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. And that word nations there is not just talking about political states. It's talking about people groups. So, for example, India, which we mentioned earlier, one nation state, thousands of distinct people groups, distinct dialects, even different languages often, that may not even talk to one another. All these different nations, all these people groups of the world, saying all of you should worship this one God. That's the second imperative, is go out and get other people to worship our God too. And he gives two rationales in support of these two imperatives, two, two reasons for this. The first reason is because our God's the best. And he says, uh, look up on the screen, he says, the gods of the other nations are merely idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The gods of the other nations are merely idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Robert Alter is this guy, uh, this professor of Hebrew, at, distinguished professor at University of Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley. And he has come out with this great translation of the, the Torah and also the Psalms. And I especially like the translation of the Psalms. And he translates this word idols, this word merely idols, as ungods. That's the literal Hebrew. The gods of the other nations are ungods. They're not gods at all. They're, they're faux gods. But our God made the heavens. In other words, our God is the consummate God. Our God is the quintessence of a deity because he's the author of creation. The first rationale the psalmist gives for why everybody should worship our God instead of whatever other God they're worshiping is because our God is the God. He is the greatest God. So the first one has to do with God. And he deserves it. It's fitting. The second rationale he gives is different, though. The second one is that this God is going to judge all people whether or not they know about him. So look up on the screen. 
tell all the nations the Lord is king, he will judge all peoples fairly. For the Lord is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and all the nations with his truth. So the first one's about God. It's fitting. This, the second one is about the people. And he's saying, look, this is the guy that's going to judge them at the end of time, at the end of their lives, whether they know about it or not. So don't you think they would like kind of a, a heads up about that? You know, if you're, if you're living your whole life trying to please this judge over here, and then you come to the end of the performance and somebody says, well, turns out this judge is actually an unjudge. And you're really performing for this other judge over here. And the, the two judges have totally different scorecards, totally different criteria. If that's the case, you'd like to know that in advance. You would like somebody to alert you to that fact. And that's the second rationale the psalmist gives for his imperatives, to go tell and summon them to praise too, is look, they need, it's, only, it's only compassionate that they would know that this is the guy that's going to judge them in the end. Two imperatives and two reasons for those imperatives. And before we move on to the second section, I want to pause for a second and just make a couple of observations about his argument. So the first observation is that in one sense it's, it's just as bad as you feared. In another sense it's not, not quite as bad as you feared. So the sense in which it's just as bad as you feared is he does say everybody should worship our God because our God's the best. And he's going to judge all people. I mean, that's about as intolerant and absolutist as can be. And there's really no way out of that. There's no wiggle room there. The sense in which it's, it's not quite as bad as you might have feared just in terms of offending our contemporary values of tolerance is in terms of his tone and in terms of his recommended methodology. So his tone is not belligerent. And he's, his recommended methodology, he's not saying go uh, coerce people. He's not saying go do this violently. In fact, his tone is joyful, and the recommended methodology is go and sing. The whole thing is about song. It's all song-soaked. It's go and sing and have others join you in song. So he's a hardliner when it comes to the doctrine, our God above all other gods. But he's not like any hardliner you've met before because he's very soft-hearted. He's an artist. He's joyful. So in that sense, it's not quite as bad as it looks at first. It's the first observation. A second observation I want to make is, do you notice the way that he just assumes that his God is the greatest God. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't make any arguments for it. He doesn't ha- offer any proofs. He just assumes our God is the best. How does it, why does he do that? Is that just because he's biased? You know, it's, it's his God, and so, of course, he thinks his God is the best. No, it's not, it's not really that. Actually, what it's about is, so, you know, Psalms comes however many hundreds of pages into the, the Hebrew Scriptures. A lot has happened already. And the reason that he's able to just assume without argument that his God is the best is because those first however many hundred pages have been about this God, the God of Abraham, the God of Israel, differentiating himself from and demonstrating his superiority over all of the other gods in that area in that time. So you remember God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to to kill your son, Isaac. And Abraham says, okay. And then before Abraham goes through with it, God says, stop, don't do it. What is that about? You know, it's one of the most disturbing passages in the whole Bible. Why does he put that there? Why does God do that? He does it because he's trying to differentiate himself from all the other gods. Because one of the most common worship practices in that day, in that area, was child sacrifice. And God is saying, I'm not like the other gods. I would never ask you to do that. 
And in the same way, he demonstrates his superiority. So we, we talked about a few weeks back, uh, we already mentioned this, you know, the plagues in Egypt, each of those plagues, he's showing his power over one of the Egyptian gods. So, oh, you worship this god of the sun? Okay, here's darkness. Oh, you worship this god of the river? Okay, look who controls the river. It's all about his superiority. And then the whole episode with the Egyptians concludes in, in spectacular fashion so that nobody doubts who's really in control. You know, they're pinned up against the sea, they're trying to escape, and it looks like they're going to be slaughtered and been, be brought back into slavery. And at the last moment, God parts the waters. He parts the sea, and they walk through the sea on dry ground to the other side. And so then the Egyptians try to follow after him, and he brings back down the waters on top of the Egyptians. And everybody knew about that. He was famous. That did not happen every day. It wasn't the kind of thing that, oh, big deal. Everybody in the world at that time knew about Israel's God, knew about the power of Israel's God, so much so that they didn't want to fight Israel. It was like, well, your army sucks, but your God is really powerful. So let's negotiate. Everybody knew about Israel's God. And the thing that we we don't understand today is they could even admit is the superiority of Israel's God, even if they didn't worship him. So it's like, your God is clearly better. Even though I've got my God, your God is clearly better. It's like a girl saying you're, to a friend, your boyfriend is clearly better than mine. You know, I, I've got my boyfriend, but, and I'm going to stay true to him, but objectively we can admit your boyfriend is clearly better. <laughs> He's better looking, he makes more money, and on top of that, he treats you better than mine treats me. And that's how people felt about Israel's God. He's more powerful. He's kinder to his people. He, he's better. He's just objectively better. And so that's why the psalmist just assumes it. Everybody knows our God is the best God. All the nation should worship him. That's the psalmist's perspective. That's the first section of the sermon. Second section of the sermon, has anything changed since then? Has anything changed since this was written? And we're concerned here with what one change in particular, one thing that's happened since this was written. Uh, this section is going to be a little shorter than the last one, but it's going to be a little bit denser, too, so you have to stay tuned. And, and we can set up this one thing that's happened by, by talking about it like this. So in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's this tension. There's this tension between, on the one hand, what we're talking about here in Psalm 96. Let all nations worship our God, the God of Abraham, because he's the best God. You've got that on the one hand. But then on the other hand, you have this other thing, which is the exclusivity and the chosenness of Israel as a people. So it's tricky, because you're saying, well, let everybody worship our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then the problem is, everybody's not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These other people aren't part of the family. And worship of this God was very tied up with this one family, this one lineage, and all the attending cultural traditions. And so to worship this God, the God of Abraham, you had to adopt all of that. But even if you did, A, that's a really high barrier to entry. You know, you had to become Jewish, which was very difficult. And then B, even if you did that culturally, you're still never Jewish ethnically. So you're still kind of always an outsider. So it's a tension. Let all nations worship our God, but our God is just for us. How does that work? How is that going to be resolved? And the way it's resolved, the big thing that happens, the big thing that changes, is that God does something amazing. He writes the next chapter of the story, something more amazing even than parting the Red Sea. He comes to Israel as a man. And he comes as a man and sacrifices his life to bring to completion, to bring to finality, 
all of these cultural traditions and religious traditions that had up to that point gone along with worshiping this one true God. And the traditions weren't bad. You know, I say bring to completion, bring to finality. What Jesus says is, I came to fulfill all of these systems, not abolish them. The system of the temple sacrifice, the system of all these rituals, the system of all these laws. He says, I came to fulfill all that, not abolish it. It's Matthew 5. And in fulfilling it, what he's saying, he's not saying none of that had a point. It was all worthless. He's saying, of course it all had a point, but it was pointing to me. It was pointing forward to the time when God would come and be among his people as a person and make a new way to relate to him. And so we've talked about this before. When Jesus is on the cross, that that thick curtain that separates in the temple, the holy of holies where God's presence would dwell from the rest of the temple, that curtain tears in half from top to bottom. So you say, what does that mean? Does that mean that Judaism is now obsolete, that Judaism's over? No, that's not it at all. Jesus doesn't blow it up. He blows it wide open. He blows the doors off of it. The idea is basically now anybody can worship this God, who is objectively the best, the God of the Jews, without having to become Jewish themselves. Christianity is just Judaism for Gentiles. It's Judaism for the rest of us. And that's why Jesus comes. And what you see among the first Christians, the first uh, generation of Christians in the, the earliest decades after Jesus, this was the big aha. And this was what a majority of the New Testament is about, this discovery that, wait a minute, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. Remember how we had all those prophecies, all those scriptures about how our God was for everybody, including the Gentiles, but we could never understood what that meant or how that was supposed to work? This is it. Jesus is it. And so listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Paul, by the way, the consummate Jew. He says, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. And he never converts. You know, he never stops being Jewish. But he does realize that Jesus is God in the flesh. And he does realize that Jesus' coming means that even non-Jews can worship this God, the best God. So listen to what he says. We'll put this up on the, the screen. As it is written... I will praise you among the nations and sing to your name. That's Psalm 18. And again it says, Rejoice, O nations, with his people. That's Deuteronomy 32. And again, praise the Lord, all you nations, and let all the peoples extol him. That's Psalm 117. And again, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the nations, and in him will the nations hope. That's Isaiah 11. So he goes back through all these scriptures, all these scriptures that he's had since he was a boy and never understood. And I said, look, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And the word nations there in all those verses is the word Gentiles, non-Jewish nations. You know, they already have God. But what about the nations? What about everybody else? And Paul says it's through Jesus. Now, through Jesus, everybody and anybody can worship this God, can claim our God as their God, as their very own. That's what's changed. That's the big shift that's taken place. And now, because of that, this can happen, the imperatives of Psalm 96 can happen in a way that the author of Psalm 96 could have never before dreamed or imagined. It's made it possible for the first time. Let's move on to the third and final section of the sermon, which is how does this apply to us? What, what are we supposed to do about this? How does it affect us? And the, the, the other thing that Paul says in the book of Romans is, he, you know, he talks about, okay, look, all these scriptures have been fulfilled. Now it's possible for anybody from any nation to worship our God without assuming all these cultural trappings. The next thing he says is, we've got to tell them. 
Somebody's got to tell them. You know, imagine something happens in Palestine in the first century that affects everybody. You have to get the word out sometime, somehow. And he, that's what he's talking about for a lot of the book is we have to get the word out. That's what he devotes the rest of his life to, taking this message that this great good God is available to everybody. And he wants that message to be taken to every nation, just like the author of Psalm 96 talks about. This is missions. This is becoming a missionary. And, you know, it's, it's amazing what hasn't changed since Psalm 96 in the first place and what hasn't changed even since Paul wrote in the second place. What's still the same today is that there are still thousands of people, groups that have never heard, just as there were in Psalm 96, just as there were in Paul's day. Thousands of people groups still today in 2014 that have never heard this story about this God who parted the Red Sea, who came as a man to live among his people. You know, you say, you, you've heard, you know, about this God, right? You've heard this story. No, I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't heard that one. Uh, this was a few years ago at this church on an Easter Sunday, and the, the Sunday school teacher was talking about the story of Easter, was telling the story of Easter to the kids that were there. There were a lot of first-time kids, and so she's, she's telling the story about Jesus, this, this perfect man who everybody loved and who was so kind and gentle and let the little children come unto him. And this one boy is listening really intently. And you can tell that he's, he's never heard of Jesus before. He's just on the edge of his seat. So she keeps going, talking about Jesus, all his miracles, and he's just, you know, wrapped. And then she talks about how he was betrayed and how the people decide to kill him and how he's put to death. And the little boy stands up and screams, No, 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 they can't do that, they can't do that, and starts crying. And she says, well, well, just, just wait, just, you know, sit down. And so she talks about him, him being buried, you know, and him, him dying and being buried, and then uh, being, the tomb being shut, and talks about the waiting on Saturday, and then talks about the resurrection, coming to the tomb, and the tomb stone being rolled away, and the tomb being empty, Jesus is alive. And the little boy jumps up and says, yes, 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 I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. <laughs> and I could march across this stage, missionary after missionary after missionary, who would testify to the fact that that is the exact reaction so many people have, not little boys, but grown men and women, when they hear this story for the first time. I knew it. I knew he had to be out there. I knew there had to be more than just the God of the sun and the wind and the stars. I knew that he was real. I knew he cared about me, but they'd never heard before. I went as a missionary to Thailand for a semester when I was in college, and the, the trip was only notable for how little impact I had. You know, I, I, uh, I, I had a great time. I got a lot out of it personally. Um, but nobody, as far as I could tell, was, was influenced for the better, which was, you know, fine. It was a nice semester. Um, so I got a letter a couple of years after I had left from a, a couple, these other missionaries that I had worked with while I lived there. And she t told me this story. She said, you know, the, the family that you live with, while, while I was there, I lived with a Thai family. I, stayed, I rented a room from, from them, from a local family in that city. And she said uh, they, they came and, and talked to her. And what they said was they would see me reading my Bible, and they could tell that it was a holy book. And, you know, we never talked about 
religion at all because I didn't speak very much Thai. They didn't speak very much English. We had fun. You know, they, they took me out to eat. We sang songs, played games, whatever, but we didn't really get into it. But she said that they, they came and they said they, they saw me reading my Bible and they could tell that it was a holy book. And they would even sneak into my room sometimes when I was gone and try to open it up and try to read it with a little bit of English they, they knew. And they came to the missionaries and said, but, but we couldn't understand it. You know, and, and we want to know what's inside that book. We want to know if that's why he was so happy what's in that book. And uh, the missionary said, well, you know, we have a Bible in Thai. You know, we can give you this. And they're like, oh, okay. So they take that, and they read it, and they, they talk with the missionaries. And over time, they come to say, well, this is clearly the best God. Now, this is clearly the real God. Why hadn't anybody told us about him before? And not only did they decide to become Christians, the guy, the husband, decided to become a pastor. He started a church in that city the church which now my missionary friends attend as members. He's their pastor. And every Sunday at that church, they do exactly what Psalm 96 requires. They follow precisely these imperatives of the author of Psalm 96. They praise this God. They sing to this great God. They recognize his glory and his strength. They tell everyone how amazing he is. And they thank him. Because he's good, because he's a God that saves. Did you catch that part earlier when we read it? This is verse 2. Tell everyone how great he is, proclaim how great he is, sing how good he is, because he saves, because our God saves. See, that's the ultimate response to this challenge. Well, why are you promoting your God over every other God? Because our God is the only one that saves. And that's what they talk about at this church every Sunday because they know it personally. They've experienced that. He saved them. Our God is the only one who saves. Our God is the only one who bends down and picks up. The only one who takes you wherever you're at, whatever you're, you've done, and says, I will take all of your wrongs upon my back. I will do whatever it costs to rescue you from yourself and from whatever else you've got going. I will save you. Our God's the only God that does that. I mean, tell me, if you know another God that does that, tell me. Stand up and tell us about this other God. There's only one God who saves. And so, yeah, we're going to talk about him. We're going to proclaim him to everybody. We're going to expect everybody to worship him. So there's something I said earlier, which may have rubbed you at the wrong way at the time, which was one of the rationales for why we have to proclaim this God to everybody is because he's going to judge all people, whether they know about it or not. And at the time, you might have thought, see, that's what bothers me. You know, that's, that's exactly what I don't like right there, this idea that this God is going to judge all people whether they know about it or not. That doesn't seem fair. And this idea that we've got to go and warn everybody, that doesn't seem right. But I think you misunderstood. The reason we have to tell everybody that this God is going to be their judge is because he is a far kinder, far more forgiving judge than whatever other judge they're currently worshiping. The message is, what, what, who are you trying to please? Stop trying so hard. Why are you trying so hard? What, what judge are you worshiping? Come over here. This God is forgiving. This God is merciful. This judge is kind. Come worship him instead. And all you have to do to receive his mercy is to call out to him. But how are they going to call upon him unless they know about him. And how are they going to know about him unless somebody tells them? And how is somebody going to tell them unless they go? And who's going to go 
unless they're sent. As Isaiah said, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring good news. Let's pray. God, we sing to you today and speak to you today and thank you today for being so good, for being so powerful, and most of all, for being so kind to us, for being so merciful, for reaching down and saving us. God, we know that you care about every person on this earth, in every country, speaking every language, as much as you care about us, and that whether they've heard about you or not makes no difference to you in how desperately you want a relationship with them. I ask that you would give us a small taste of that this morning, that you would impart that passion to us, that we would come to see how by sharing you with people that haven't heard, their joy can be increased, your joy can be increased, and our joy can be increased. Help us to figure out what this means in a world today that, that values tolerance above all else. Help us to figure out how to do this in a way that's sensitive and kind and unobtrusive, but help us to do it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, who came so that we could know you. Amen.